Welcome to Sound Encounters, the show where I take you on a musical journey as we explore different genres, bands and artists, and new and classic releases. I'm Cesar Torres, and I'll be your guide today. Welcome back to episode 31, the second new episode of 2021. I am currently recording during... uh, It's not snowing as hard as it was like probably a couple minutes ago but I'm, I'm currently recording during a snowstorm and whenever you know it gets really bad out here I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before uh, on a different episode but I just have to reach for my phone and listen to like mood music or music that accompanies uh, you know a really good snowstorm and it's always different each year like this, like last year, I should say, uh, was Aviary by Julia Holter. And then around this time last year, I was really into The Seer and To Be Kind by Swans because it was like about the first time I was listening to those albums. This year, however, I've been drawn to more uh, electronic stuff and as well as, I guess, a little more contemporary folk because, well, I just listened to Michigan by Sufjan Stevens or like a couple of songs off of that album because I didn't get to finish the entire album and I've heard it before but uh, specific songs just remind me of the winter time and you know I associate that album with just heavy snow or just snow in general and I think the two songs that I really gravitated towards off of that album were the second and fourth track All Good Naysayers Speak Up and Say Yes to Michigan it also helps that there is snow on the album cover and helps me associate that album with the winter time uh and then you know not exactly like the entire album uh, of replica and rave death 1972 but like two songs specifically i really like listening to power of persuasion by one of tricks point never during a snowstorm you know if you've heard that song there's like this loop that kind of sounds like a piano uh and it keeps like descending and for whatever reason it reminds me of like a snowfall and rave death 1972 has in the fog specifically in the fog part two and i think i remember listening to that specific song during a a particularly bad snowstorm last year it is easier to conjure up a memory if it has a song or songs attached to it. And I pretty clearly remember where I was when I heard that song for the first time. And remember, it was in a snowstorm. So, you know, when it comes to a really heavy snow or, or a really bad snowstorm, I just like, you know what? I rush to the phone or my laptop because Spotify is on my laptop and my phone. Put the headphones on and just press play. I've also been listening to a lot of Loud City Song by Julia Holter. Uh, I really love her music. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully one like someday in the future I get to cover maybe Aviary or Tragedy. Uh, maybe even, oh, I forget the name of this the, the album, but it's it has the word wilderness in it. I, I forget the exact name. Maybe I might even do a guide to Julia Holter because her music is just so freaking amazing. And I'm also listening to like The Cure as well as women, post-punk band women. I think I talked about them last week very briefly when I was talking about Shame uh, and their new album. 
but yes, I have a very, I, I just gravitate towards certain genres and certain artists when the wintertime comes around and especially during, uh, heavy snows. Are you the same way? Uh, are there certain albums, bands, songs that you gravitate towards whenever you're caught in a nasty snowstorm? And, and even for those of you who don't even have seasons and don't get snow, is there any differing, uh, genres that you cycle through during the year you can let me know if you go to anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters or soundencounters.com to send a voice message to let me know you know what genres you listen to throughout the year are there any specific genres albums songs that you cycle through during the winter time again anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters soundencounters.com or you could follow the link in the podcast description, and it'll take you to where you need to go to send that voice message. And I guess this will segue pretty nicely into what I have in store for this week's show. We're going to talk about Midwest emo, a genre that I love to listen to during the winter time. But first, we got to talk about this past week in music. All right, so first up, we got some singles. The first single that I heard this week was And Everything Changed, But I Feel Alright by William Doyle. For those of you who don't know, William Doyle is an art pop artist from the UK. He's also known for his ambient works. And the only reason I started listening to Doyle was after I was told to listen to his 2019 release, Your Wilderness Revisited. That album is addicting. He has such a way with imagery and uses vibrant textures in the music, you know, in conjunction with his storytelling. It is a beautiful album, and if you are interested in his music after listening to this new single, I would highly recommend that album. But it seems like he has a new project on the horizon, and this new track here is his first single, the first single for the project. And he's picking up where he left off in 2019. This track features catchy vocals, lush instrumentation, you know, especially the soaring guitars and the hazy rising synths. And I love the optimistic vocals. And, you know, I already have the chorus stuck in my head, which is a great sign for a catchy pop tune. And that's exactly what it is. Just overall catchy and moody art synth pop track. And if this is a sign of things to come, then I'm really looking forward to this upcoming album. And then we got a teaser track for an upcoming Weezer album, OK Human, actually comes out tomorrow, uh, if you're listening to this on Thursday, January 28th, 2021. And I know it's a big meme to dislike Weezer, and I genuinely do not find their music interesting, probably outside of the classic two records, the Blue Album and Pinkerton, but because I've you know spent so much time listening to those albums, they've slowly become less and less interesting, but those two albums are probably the the best projects in their discography. And sure, while over the years they have released some exciting stuff, you know, I won't lie, some of the songs they've released between 1996 and now have been fun. Uh, but for the most part, their LPs are just not that great. So yeah, I have low expectations for the band after years, decades really, of being disappointed. And I will admit, this song almost won me over. The strings and piano sound lighthearted and poppy, and it's an interesting departure from the cheesy rock pop of their last two records, not counting the Teal album, 
And I found myself impressed with this different side of Weezer. And then Rivers Cuomo starts singing and it just didn't work for me anymore. I should be used to his voice by now, but I don't think it works with this arrangement. Plus, I do find his voice grating. And I think it's because I've listened to Weezer for so long. I have the same issue with Damon Albarn from Gorillaz, although his voice isn't just terrible. I just got used to it. So it just kind of it, it does nothing for me anymore. So yeah, Weezer's trying something different. We'll see how the album holds up, but for the most part, I'm not really feeling this new track here. Next is Dirt Knock by Madlib, another album that's coming out tomorrow when this podcast is released. And I'm really excited for this one because Madlib. <laughs> I've been following the singles and this is most likely the last one before the full LP drops. And this is probably my favorite of the three. And mainly because I prefer the minimal production of this one. It's just the drums, that that weird clicking effect, which now that I think about it, it, it could be guitar, uh, and the singer. And it loops, and it's a, a chill and calming atmosphere, which Madlib is good at. But, you know, the presentation is different from what we're used to. And, and I'm really happy with this song because it shows us that Madlib is still willing to experiment. He's still got that sharp, creative mind. So really looking forward to this Madlib project. I'll cover it extensively next week. Next, we have a new Arca single, Madre. So this new Arca single did confuse me at first, uh, not because of the song's content, but because this was labeled as an EP on Spotify where I listen to most of my music. And I thought it was an EP, but actually it's just one new song with three stems, one of them being an acapella stem and another just a cello part. So I'll just be going over this new song and not, you know, the other stems. Uh, and I will say I didn't expect to hear from Arca so soon after the release of Kick One. And hopefully this means a follow up is on the way soon. And after years of listening to their style of deconstructed pop and glitch hop, this new track is mind-blowing and not for the reasons that you think we have a very atmospheric sparse chamber song that's a tribute to their mother slow somber strings and arca's devastating and soft vocals create this desolate feeling yet we get these ethereal ambient pads that irradiate warmth it's an absolutely beautiful and incredibly sobering track arca does it again and if there is a full album that will sound like this, then I'm all in. It would be amazing. And the final new track that I heard this week is a collaboration between Billie Eilish and Rizalia for the HBO show Euphoria. This one is called Lovas a Olividar. I don't know if I said that right. And it's an ambient pop piece with Spanish lyrics. It switches between Spanish and English, but it's mostly in Spanish. And I have to commend Billie's Spanish here because it sounds really good. This is mostly a dreamy track, and it does the atmospheric mood really well. But other than that, not not much really happens on this track. I imagine this was a song that was created to fit a certain scene on the show, and I don't watch the show, so I'm not sure what the scene, what the context of the scene could be. And it could very well work in the context of whatever scene they're gonna add it to. But as, as a song alone, it's just kind of underwhelming. All right, so that does it for the singles. Let's get on to the one LP that I heard this week. You know, I check my resources every week, you know, the different websites that I visit to see if there's any new LPs, EP singles, so I can cover them on this show. And this week, 
you know, it didn't seem like a lot came out or at least a lot that I was interested in. Uh, so I went back to review an album that I didn't get a chance to review because it came out on January 1st. And that album is Bob's Son by Rap Ferreira. And I loved last year's Purple Moonlight Pages. It was in my best of 2020 list. So of course I would hop on another Rap Ferreira project. And it looks like he's doing double duty as a producer. Scallops Hotel, another moniker of Rap Ferreira, a.k.a. Rory, a.k.a. Milo, is credited as a producer for all of these songs. And so hearing Rory produce would be interesting this time around, especially since the producers on the last album uh, were credited to the Jefferson Park Boys, you know, Kenny Siegel. Uh, and I was eager to see, eager to hear really, if he would do anything different on this release, at least different from Moonlight Pages. So Bob's son is here. What do I think of it? Well, it's certainly a step in a different direction after Purple Moonlight Pages. He still raps like he's performing slam poetry. You know, verses require a bit more attention, and afterward you might just get a hint of what he's saying. He does pay tribute to poets, presumably his favorite poets, whether it's direct references or samples of them. You know, we hear Gregory Corso and Ted Jones, and the album is named after the beat poet Bob Kaufman. But beats have become... A bit more experimental. There are songs that remind me of Earl Sweatshirt or Mike with how creative Rory gets with the beats. You know, we get that muddled sampling and the return of jazz and boom bap sampling. I love production that is psychedelic and creates this dark atmosphere. You know, a lot of hip hop, uh, abstract hip hop beats are like that. And, and there are some really creative beats here with a diverse range of samples and textures. But I have an issue on how they are presented at least in the album's first half. Up until the seventh track, Skrenth, songs are divided into two phases. The first half of a song being supported by a dreary hypnotic beat, then about halfway through the song, it switches to a slightly more upbeat, jazzy, boom-bap beat. Now, there is nothing wrong with this. In fact, I love it when songs switch things up and, and keeps you know, the listener engaged. The problem is once you catch on to what's happening, it becomes less impressive and Rory seems to be doing this without any real reason. I love the dreamy sense on the first half of Yamship's Flaxseed, but then it's interrupted by a jazzy piano loop, which, by the way, is wonderful, but I felt as if the first beat didn't have enough time to breathe. I would have gladly listened to a whole track with that first instrumental all the way through. The Cough Bomber's Return has a similar problem, but the second half isn't as interesting as the first, Sips of Ripple Wine's back half is really entrancing, but I can't say that about the beginning of the song. Redguard Snipers is the only song that balances this structure perfectly. Both beats have time to breathe and the transition isn't abrupt. I'm thinking that he has these beats he is proud of, which he should be. A lot of these songs are wonderful, but wanted to cram them into most of these songs, which I don't really agree with that approach. He should have made shorter songs or save them for a different project. Starting with Skrenth, though, the production becomes more straightforward and we are allowed to soak in his dreamy and dense beats. Skrenth loops a bass, piano, and a smooth guitar riff, definitely one of my favorite beats on the project. Rejoice is a very psychedelic track with a twinkling xylophone loop. And the final track, Abominus Manifesto, is atmospheric with cosmic guitar samples. Now, I won't lie. Once again, I'm not 100% sure what Rory is talking about most of the time. That requires further analysis. But there is a thread 
of being an artist, being a poet while listening to these songs. Hearing some of these samples, reading some of the track titles and the album title, you, you start to get that feeling. And there's also some vulnerability in Rory's words and seeing life through his eyes. There's also a reference to Dadaism, and of course there would be, and his rhymes and rhyme schemes and flows are on point throughout the entire project. So this one is a bit of a mixed bag, but I like it for what it is, although I do have some problems with it. I would recommend Bob's Son if you like Rap Ferreira and Abstract Hip Hop. I think you'll find something to like in this project. All right, so that does it for this past week in music. Stay tuned. When we come back, we'll be talking about Midwest Emo and five albums to get you into Midwest Emo. Stay tuned, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to Sound Encounters. Before the break, I promised that we were going to talk about Midwest Emo, and that is exactly what we're going to do. So, of course, I got to talk about the genre itself before we get into five albums to get you into the genre. With a name like Midwest Emo, you would think that it's pretty straightforward. It's just emo that originated in the Midwestern United States, right? Well, yeah, that plays a big part in it, but Midwest emo is also a style of music that transcends, you know, geographical location. As some early acts weren't even from the Midwest, like Sunny Day Real Estate, they hailed from Seattle. Midwest emo combines the sounds and styles of the indie rock scene from Seattle with post-hardcore music of Washington, D.C. And we've talked about post-hardcore before in the show. Uh, the music tends to feature arpeggiated guitar melodies and very emotional and sometimes whiny vocals and emotional lyrics. You know, that's a lot of what makes an emo. Vocalists can alternate from screaming or crying to whispered and off-key singing with, you know, a little screaming. Sometimes bands will take inspiration from math rock and employ constant time signature switches and complex rhythms and melodies. We'll see some bands use these methods. I love Midwest emo because it offered something different in the emo scene at the time. You know, I love the aggression and fury of the initial DC scene, you know, especially with some bands like Rites of Spring or Embrace. But what is presented in a lot of Midwest emo music is easier to digest because of its focus on melody. And at the same time, the, the scream your head off vocals and emotional lyricism can be very cathartic. That's what initially drew me in, and I love listening to this genre around this time of year, the winter. I'll, I'll just say there's a reason why it's called Midwest Emo. Midwest winters are miserable, but at least the music is good. So we now know what the genre is, what it entails. So without further ado, here are five albums to get you into the genre. First, I have Diary by Sunny Day Real Estate, released in 1994. So as I mentioned a moment ago, Sunny Day Real Estate were one of the forefathers of Midwest emo, and they weren't even from the Midwest. They are from Seattle, Washington, although they did record this album in Chicago. So boom, a win for the Midwest. They are a very influential band, and their first full-length album, Diary, was a seminal release as many bands tried to adopt their unique sound. A lot of the songs featured on this project is typical of what you would hear from a grunge band. 
we get a lot of distorted, sludgy, and chugging guitars throughout the album that gives the music its grimy quality. You know, I talked about In Circles during my winter playlist episode in December, and that song is actually a great example of a lot of the characteristics these songs on this album has. Twinkling guitar arpeggios alternating between soft and loud, and of course, depressing lyrics. In Circles has some of the most disheartening lyrics on the project, as lead singer Jeremy Enoch sings about being stuck in a disastrous relationship. I have to applaud the lyricism and delivery here because the lyrics don't outright say that the song is about a broken and messy relationship, but it gives us enough to piece together what it's about while also focusing on the emotions of the narrator. And this is elevated by Enix's devastating delivery. During the verses, he's almost whispering the lyrics, and it, it sounds like he is the most hurt during the, the verses. Then on the chorus, he explodes and starts shouting, and I think this is where he is fed up. He's sick of this spiral that him and his partner found themselves in. The song does a fantastic job at portraying the anguish a person feels during an unsettling moment in their life. Another song that checks all the boxes in terms of strong delivery and lyrics is the following track, Song About an Angel. This one is about a conversation between a man and an angel, and there seems to be a bit of a miscommunication between the two. However, they both make the statement, discomfort comes clearly. And I find it interesting that the word words is shouted on the bridge. Almost like both parties only hear indiscernible words and not what the other person is actually saying, but they both understand the pain that one another is feeling. It's a really complex subject for a rock song, if, if you ask me, but I love it. The one thing that really anchors the song is Enig's wonderful performance. He really shines throughout the album. And Dan Horner's guitar riffs are memorable, and the bassist and drummer do a fine job. But it's really Enig's show here. He does a fantastic job of emulating the pain in these songs. Uh, there's even a somber piano ballad in the middle of the album with Enig's dejective vocals. It comes out of left field and clashes with the angsty grunge sound of the rest of the album, but it just works. Oh, and Grendel was another surprise with its dreamy chords and the muddled vocals. It actually sounds like an ambient rock fusion, and it's one of the most memorable songs on the album. Sunny Day Real Estate really set the expectation for Midwest emo and, and really transformed the emo genre from you know, the, the Washington, D.C. scene to, to something that is more palatable uh, and introspective. So definitely one of the most significant releases in the genre. Number two, I have Schmaptin Schmaz by Captain Jazz, released in 1995. Now, I know this is a ridiculous name for an album, but this isn't even its real name. The actual name for this LP starts with the word burritos and then lists several other things, making for a ridiculously long album name. So we're calling this project the Schmappen, <laughs> I can't even say it, Schmappen Schmaz LP. Captain Jazz was formed by brothers Tim and Mike Kinsella in Chicago in 1989. Now we're talking Midwest. The band only released a single LP, this one, and disbanded shortly after its release. In 1998, Jade Tree Records released a double CD called <sighs> Anal Fabeta Polythology. Yeah, that's what it's called. Containing everything the band recorded, including this LP. Also, fun fact, this album was recorded in the same studio that Diary was. So there you go. Emo, emo fun fact of the segment. 
When Captain Jazz started, the brothers Kinsella were only teenagers just wanting to make punk music like their idols. And we hear that throughout this album. Energetic and loud guitar riffs and shouted and extreme vocals. Anyone listening to this project who knows punk knows that this isn't a typical punk release. One of the first songs I heard from this band was Oh Messy Life, the second track off of this LP, and I was blown away the first time I heard it. At first, the guitarists sound very sloppy, as the two guitarists play very different melodies at the same time. Almost sounds like a Captain Beefheart song. Sounds like two guitarists playing, you know, random notes, and it was very off-putting considering I wasn't used to listening to music like this when I first heard this song. Uh, but it fits that DIY punk aesthetic perfectly. But it does become easier to listen to the more you hear it, uh, especially when the song builds to this explosive riff in the hook. It makes this very unconventional sounding intro worth it. While the music tends to switch up things rapidly, almost like it's trying to give you whiplash, this isn't the most interesting part of Cap'n Jazz's formula. Lead singer Tim Kinsella, much like Jeremy Enoch, is such an enigmatic figure in these songs. Not only is he screaming his head off and moaning incoherently and shouting nonsense, his lyrics come off as almost impenetrable. At first, the lyrics of Oh Messy Life comes off as gibberish, especially that second verse, but taking a closer look, it seems like he is referring to working. Fire is motion, work is repetition, this is my document, we are all, all we've done. When I first heard this song, I was a student at university. I didn't have a job, and I still had this like childlike wonder, and I didn't understand what Kinsella was saying, but I still enjoyed the abrasive vocals and shouting as I thought they were cathartic. Now, I can see this song is somewhat of a critique of the monotony of a work routine. In the eyes of employers, in the eyes of our peers, all we really amount to is the work that we have done and how successful we are. The hook viewed through this lens starts to make a bit more sense. And you are colder than you could ever be, and you are bolder than buzzing bugs. A person could become very unhappy once they get into that repetitive routine of working constantly, and they start to lose that youthful spark. It becomes a very depressing song, but I love how it has that punk energy to it as a contrast. Considering how young the band members were when they wrote this album, I get why the songs are like this. It's a perfect portrayal of kids entering adulthood and rejecting it and lashing out. You know, that's why Kinsella sounds so intense. It's the purest form of expressing his emotions. After the initial hook of Oh Messy Life, Tim goes on about his cousin Bucky, and I'm not exactly sure what he's going on about, <laughs> but I can feel his anger because of his passionate delivery. There is that youthful perspective throughout the album, whether it's the incoherent lyrics or Kinsella's childlike singing at times, it's an album that has a juvenile outlook on life. We have songs like Puddle Splashers, which refers to kids splashing in rain puddles, or the opening track Little League. It's a song named after a children's baseball organization. And I get this feeling of youthful playfulness throughout the track, especially toward the end when Kinsella sings Kitty Kitty Cat in a higher register. A song like Que Suerte, the last track on the album, offers childhood vignettes and flashes of the past through little lines like sitting on your driveway and favorite late night desperate phone calls. However, the hook of the song has Kinsella screaming, let me let go, almost as if he wants to get rid of these memories or he realizes he needs to let go of his childhood, which is shockingly mature, which brings me to my final talking point on the album, and that's the maturity the songs can convey. The song Flashpoint Catheter Yes, that's the name of the song. 
had the most surprising lyrics because Kinsella talks about how looking up at the sky makes him feel small and, and it makes him feel his mortality. That Van Gogh's sky shrinks the city that shrinks me. I never thought something as powerful as this would come from an album like this. You know, accompanying Kinsella's shrieks are softer, jangly guitars until it builds with the climax. An incredible song and might be my second favorite under O Messy Life. You may think most of what is said and done on this album is nonsense, but I promise you it's not. It's one of the most visceral albums I've heard in my life, and it's something that one should experience because I feel like I am not doing it justice just by talking about it. At number three, we have American Football's self-titled debut released in 1999. This band from Urbana, Illinois was formed after the demise of Captain Jazz. Mike Kinsella, the drummer for Captain Jazz, formed the band with drummer and trumpet player Steve Lamos and guitar player Steve Holmes. For the longest time, this was the only LP under their name as they took a hiatus from 2000 to 2014. During that time off, this LP gained a lot of popularity and became one of the most acclaimed email releases of all time. And after listening to the album, I can see why. The music on American Football's first LP is a lot more mellow than the other projects. Gentle tweakling arpeggios and chords and Kinsella's soft melodic singing makes this one of the more accessible albums on the list. This sound is highlighted from the start. Neverman's chord progression provides a soft bed of dreamy chords for Kinsella's melancholic lyrics of justifying a relationship that's gone south. There's no Captain Jazz level of absurdity in the lyrics. Mike lays out the entire story for us. I love the moment in the chorus where the guitars overpowers the vocals that sound distant and we hear there are some things that were said that weren't meant repeated a couple of times. It, it suspends us there in its adolescent gloom for a moment and it's perfect. And if the song sounds off to you, it could be because of its odd time signature. This song is played in 6-4 and we're going to see that a lot throughout this album. Because of its odd time signature, the record is also considered a math rock album, and we do hear dynamic and unconventional song structures throughout the album, and Nevermint is a great intro because it lets us know that this isn't going to be your average emo LP. I love a song like The Summer Ends because it gives me that nostalgic feeling that a lot of Captain Jazz songs give me. As a kid, you hate this when the summer ends because that means the end of summer vacation and you have to go back to school. At least, I know I did. And while the song isn't about that, it's about the end of a relationship. The instrumentation, you know, the jangly guitars and the joyless trumpet communicates a sense of nostalgia, at least for me. Also, we gotta give it up for Steve Lamos' excellent trumpet playing. Lamos makes American football stand out among the other emo bands because of his distinct trumpet playing. He's great on the summer ends, but he has an amazing solo at the beginning of For Sure. Keeping up with the nostalgic theme, the track honestly begins with one of the most memorable lines in emo music. Honestly, I can't remember teen dreams. All my teenage feelings and the meanings, they seem to see through to be true. To begin your song with a sobering statement like that is pretty ballsy. And it lets us place American football's music in relation to other emo bands. Because other emo bands like to frame their narratives from the perspective of a kid, a teenager. But Kinsella puts a twist on that by giving the adult perspective of teenage memories and with age, we lose meaning of those feelings, those emotions we felt when we were teens. A very interesting direction for an emo song, but also a very engaging one. It helps keep things interesting. Speaking of keeping things interesting, the music spice things up. 
The first portion of the song is anchored by an amazing bass line with bittersweet jangly guitars, and once both verses are done, the song proceeds to follow this winding and languorous passage comprised of power chords. This is another cathartic moment, but it doesn't involve angry shouting vocals. It's a lulling yet energetic section, and I thought it was going to be my favorite moment on the record, but then I heard Stay Home. The penultimate track on the record is an antisocial, introverted ballad that has Kinsella's hushed vocals and a tranquil, hazy riffs and, and drums. It's so satisfying to hear the meandering buildup before the vocals start. It has a trance-like quality to it, and it never fails to mesmerize me. It is a bittersweet ending to a bittersweet album that pushes the ideas that was originally set up with Sunny Day Real Estate and Captain Jazz. In number four, I have The Power of Failing by Mineral, released in 1997. All right, so here we go again, leaving the Midwest as Mineral is a group from Austin, Texas. And there isn't anything really amazing about the songwriting on this one. It's pretty straightforward. However, the lyrics do a really good job at hitting us in the feels. Lead singer Chris Simpson put more of an emphasis on the album's lyrics because he wanted to incorporate religious themes in his lyrics. He grew up Christian and became very involved in the church, so that was something that he wanted to incorporate in his music. You can take a look at a song like Gloria, and we can see that the lyrics refer to Jesus taking clay in his hands and rubbing it across a blind man's eyes so he can see again. The chorus of the song states, Because I just want to be something more than the mud in your eyes. I want to be the clay in your hands. However, it still resorts to kind of conventional emo lyrics. There's a romantic plot here. The narrator is in love, and it makes him feel strange. Because the narrator is so used to feeling sad, he's lived with it for so long, so when he doesn't feel sad, it just it makes him feel strange. But then at the end of the song, he doesn't get the girl, and he tells himself that he should have seen something like that coming. Accompanying this, we get the usual suspects, whiny vocals, and a mix of screeching chords and twinkling notes. There are other songs with lyrics with religious undertones, like the opening track 5, 8, 10, and especially the fourth track, Dolorosa. But I chose to focus on Gloria because I think it is the best of the tracks with religious lyrics. There are other songs that seem to not have this at all, though. Slower is one of my favorites, and it plays to the emo stereotypes. Another song about night finding happiness in life, and this one switches between loud and soft with distorted guitars. And the lengthy intro is the most oppressive part as there is a battle between raging chords and the low and lulling ones. 1830 is one of the saddest pieces, as it talks about yearning for childhood and the innocence of youth. And this has to be one of my favorite vocal performances from Simpson, uh, as he strains when he sings, Those days are gone now, and we must move forward still. I love the nostalgic imagery in this one. With how the closing track, Parking Lot, is written, it feels like everything that came before it was building up to this moment. He says he's not big in the grand scheme of things, but that's okay. Another song where someone feels their mortality, like on that Captain Jazz song. The third verse where he talks about how he needs to live his life and push past the pain and can't let pain hold him down is powerful. In the final verse, he learns humility and learns to laugh at himself. All the while, the guitars and drums are building to this banger of a climax. Parking Lot is definitely one of the best closing tracks on this list. 
While the music is far from impressive and the vocal performances don't reach the levels of Captain Jazz or Sunny Day Real Estate, I think this is an important album to highlight because of the different approach to lyrical writing, as well as Emo's slow transition to pop, punk, and power pop. Speaking of, the last album on my list is Something to Write Home About by The Get Up Kids, released in 1999. And I chose this album to showcase pop, punk, and Midwest Emo, the the, the marriage that these two genres faced around the late 90s, early 2000s, and to showcase something a bit more digestible, at least a bit more digestible than American football. The Get Up Kids are not screaming their heads off, although they still have whiny vocals and high-energy guitars. Missouri's Get Up Kids were fronted by vocalist and guitarist Matthew Pryor, and the band tended to focus more on bright melodies and, as per the genre, emotional vocal deliveries. A song like Action Action features a punchy guitar melody, vivid backing keyboards, and catchy vocals. The guitars are more in your face on I'm a Loner, Dottie, a Rebel, and they seem to be constantly moving, making for a more energetic, riff-focused song. I really love Pryor's vocals here, as they are more passionate as he talks about a one-night stand. Probably the best example of a lively, aggressive punk song is the opening track Holiday. The track begins with high-octane chords and Pryor's fiery delivery. The song is dynamic as well as things chill out, albeit for a moment during the chorus. Pryor sings instead of shouting and the guitars aren't as loud. I also love the lyrics as the song talks about a relationship, whether it be with a girl, a friend, maybe even a parent, that isn't in the narrator's life anymore, but they never actually said goodbye to them. That's why in the chorus, Pryor says... I'm lucky if we're speaking on the holidays, which is why he could be talking about anyone, really. You know, high school girlfriend away for college, friends away for college, or a parent who is barely in their life anymore. You know, sometimes relationships don't last forever. But we also have songs that have that chill and slower vibe. Valentine is a slower paced song, and you can really feel the emotion behind Pryor's vocals as he sings about unrequited love. Clearly, he is obsessed with whoever he is talking about. The lyrics state, Could another point of view, biased and untrue, tear me away from you? Your good intentions count for a little anymore. If you're sorry, why wage war? I'm not fully convinced there's something wrong with this. So we get lyrics about a relationship falling apart. He might not see it. He might not care if his partner is no longer showing love and affection. As he states, if I'm a world away, but they are not on the same page anymore. And it's a heartbreaking song. Then my favorite example of this emotional songwriting, and probably my favorite song of the album, is the closer, I'll Catch You. First, the song hits us with the somber piano melody after all the fast punk songs, and I was immediately hooked when I first heard this. Then the lyrics talk about a loving relationship, and it's pretty sweet because he says he'll protect her, he'll be there for her when she needs him. And he says stuff like, you're still my everything, and he wouldn't trade anything for her embrace. And then the song ends with, you're still all that matters to me. Such a wonderful way to close an album. And and it's such a wonderful album filled with emotion and fun and portrays the, the connection between pop punk and Midwest emo. And so, yeah, that's Midwest emo. That's my list. I want to do a bit of a recap of the five albums that I said you should listen to. So first, we have Diary by Sunny Day Real Estate. Then we have... Schmapp and Schmaz by Captain Jazz. Then we have American Football's self-titled debut album from 1999. The Power of Failing by Mineral. 
and Something to Write Home About by The Get Up Kids. Did you agree with my list? What are some of your favorite bands and albums in the genre? Do you think I missed any? Let me know on anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters or soundencounters.com. Or you can follow the link in the description to send a voice message and let me know what you think of the list. Let me know what your favorite bands and artists and albums are in the genre. I would love to continue this Midwest emo discussion. All right, so before I wrap things up for this week, I want to give a quick shout out to Apple user R1234567898 at Symbol for leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. They say I have always considered myself a music lover, but Cesar Torres has introduced me to several new artists and genres. He is knowledgeable and honest, and his passion shines through. If you want the best tour guide for expanding your musical horizons, check out Sound Encounters. Thank you so much for the kind words and for leaving a five-star review. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, and if you guys want to leave your own review on Apple Podcasts, make sure to do so, and I'll give you a shout-out like I just did to R123 on next week's podcast. And that does it for this week of Sound Encounters. Make sure to tune in next week for another exciting installment. Next week, I have a guide to a very well-known 70s, 80s new wave band coming out. So stay tuned for that. It'll be an exciting one. In the meantime, you can follow the Sound Encounters Twitter and Instagram pages with the handle at Sound Encounters. I post updates and share music memes on those accounts, and I interact with the lovely people who give my posts a like and a comment. You can also send me a voice message through Anchor to recommend a topic I should talk about, or you could give me some feedback. And if you do, I'll give you a shout out on the show. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash sound encounters or soundencounters.com or follow the link in the podcast description to send your message. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and that too could be featured in an upcoming episode. All right, that about wraps it up. Rock on music explorers. I'll see you next week. Ciao.